Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. Today, Pastor Fisher reminds us to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the only true answer and love for all of us. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Well, this is a dense message this morning. So just set yourselves. We've got a lot of ground to cover here. Uh, but I think this is an important topic for the people of God to get their heads around. And uh, so I just um, ask you to keep that in mind. Um, put your watch away. <laughs> and with the grace of God, we'll get through. We're studying how the gospel spread in the early church in Acts and looking for lessons for us. And there's lots of lessons in, in this book. In chapter 8, we see that following Stephen's martyrdom and the persecution of the early church, those who were scattered preached the gospel wherever they went. So that um, a, apparent uh, defeat and suffering actually opened the door for the spread of the gospel in whole new areas. And one of those was Samaria. Philip went down to Samaria and preached the gospel there. Philip, one of the deacons. And today we examine in more detail what happened in Samaria. It says, Philip went down to Samaria, to a city in Samaria, and proclaimed the Messiah there. By the way, I've got terrible allergies right now. I'm coughing and spewing, and um, so pray for me that I can get through this without having that round of sneezes that comes with, with allergies. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, Impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. You know, last week we examined the origins of, Samar of the Samaritan people, and, and we're going to look to, uh, briefly here at their character, what the culture there was like, uh, and so that we can see why there were evil spirits afflicting them. And why there was such great joy as people were, of course, they would, uh, you know, feel that when they were seeing the, the lame uh, healed and the paralyzed made whole. Um, but you, 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 I hope you're going to see that there's some sins that those people were involved in that God was dealing with that were part of their healing. And part of the reason that there was great joy in that city is the gospel came in there to set them free. Because this area wasn't just ethnically diverse. It was religiously and spiritually diverse, and I'm being kind with that. There was a lot of religious syncretism going on. A syncretism is what happens when people believe a mashup of ideas and elements from different religions, producing kind of their own folk religion. You, know, you see this in some of the islands of the Caribbean where they have a, an overlay of Catholicism, but it's on top of an underlay of ancestral spiritism and the worship of various gods and demons that come from their cultural background, and they mash those things up, and you get things like voodoo and santeria and uh, practices like that that are a folk religion that's a mashup of Christianity with other stuff. That's called syncretism. And the Samaritans believed all kinds of things, a mixture of Judaism and pagan beliefs, including occult practices and superstitions, many of which they had inherited from their ancestors. From Jesus' talk with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, we know the Samaritans believed their own mountain, Mount Gerizim, was the holiest place in the world, instead of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. 
And if you tunnel back through the history of the Old Testament, you see that the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were very eager to keep their people from going back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple there for fear of losing their loyalty. So they declared a new mountain in their own region to be the holy mountain, Mount Gerizim. They believed in one God and considered the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, plus their own version of Joshua as the only inspired scripture regarding Moses as the only prophet. They believed the Messiah was coming. They had their own name for him, but it was Messiah. And there would be a great judgment and resurrection of the dead after he came. So the woman at the well says to Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And that's when he says the one who's talking to you, him, to you is him. If the woman at the well was typical, they also had a low view of marriage. And there were probably many blended and broken families in their midst. And they also held superstitious and occult beliefs. And there are plenty of demonized and otherwise shattered people here in this region of, of Samaria as Philip comes down and begins to proclaim the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, repentance, and new life. And, you know, it's no wonder as Jesus comes in there and starts healing people and they start to get free of the consequences of generations of sin, that there's great joy in that community. And we can learn a lot of th things about sharing the gospel in our own context because Samaria is not so different from modern Western culture. There's also a, div a rising divorce rate with many modern couples choosing not even to get married and more and more blended and or broken families. Many people hold syncretistic beliefs, combining belief in one God and a few Christian ideas mixed up with incompatible and contradictory superstitious beliefs from other sources. And there is much increasing, I would say, dabbling in the occult and rising interest in magic, witchcraft, and the supernatural. Now look at how the good news about Jesus impacted Samaria. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said, and with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. You know, I find this fascinating because we have this picture of exorcism where it's kind of um, from the movie in the 60s, like an equal contest between good and evil. You know, at one moment the one's winning, the other moment the other's winning. It's kind of like a boxing match. But in the spirit realm, that's complete nonsense. Jesus, with the power of his little finger, has more power than all the demons in heaven and hell combined. Not that they're in heaven anymore, because they've been kicked out. And so it's by the power of the finger of God, Jesus said, that I cast out evil spirits. He is the creator. They were made through him, though they rebelled against him and became what they are as evil spirits. So the contest is like the contest between the creator and a little pot, a little cup, trying to fight back. It's not an equal contest. And when we come in the name of Jesus, I suspect that some of these people had the evil spirits come out of them just as they heard the gospel proclaimed. There was not even a need for Philip to confront them, although he knew how to do that, and he probably did in some circumstances. Confronted them, and they came out, including with shrieks. You know, I find that interesting, the, the concept of the coming out with shrieks. You discover this about people who are demonized, that often the demons are there because of deep-seated pain. And sometimes the pain has been involving inviting those spirits in in the first place. 
But when the spirits come out, the people are expressing a pain that they've perhaps swallowed for decades, just buried and stuck down inside them. And the good news of the gospel, the love of Jesus, opens them up to release that and to be freed from the evil that rooted in there, the evil spiritual forces of wickedness that rooted in there on top of their sin and pain. And so when those spirits come out, they shriek, but you suspect the person is shrieking. Like, ah, I finally can say this hurt and it's gone. Hallelujah. I'm healed. I remember there was this, uh, the pastor of the big church in Toronto that experienced a huge revival. And he said that there were demonic manifestations in their midst sometimes. And some Christians from afar looking at that said, what's going on here? Is this an evil movement? Is the Holy Spirit really involved here at all? And he said, you got to ask the question. When those people were expressing what they were doing that looked demonic, were the spirits coming or were they going? Think about what Jesus did in the synagogues when he cast evil spirits out of people. They were disrupting life in the synagogue when it happened. It was not pretty. It would disturb the little ordinary, traditional, let's nobody move or do anything that disrupts the service. And all of a sudden, this demonized guy goes crazy because Jesus is setting him free. And then afterwards, he's at peace. She's at peace in her right mind. The demons are gone. Yeah, sure, that was troubling for people who didn't want to have anything about their religious ceremony disturbed. But it was life. It was life. You got to ask, are the demons coming or going? And when Philip was there preaching, they were going. They were leaving. Impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. That's one of the works of the enemy is to mess us up and freeze us and paralyze us in life so that we're frozen. We can't do things for ourselves or for God. And as a result of all this liberation, there was great joy in that city. The name of Jesus is mighty to save, putting the powers of darkness to flight. It says that when he hung on the cross, he humiliated them. He took their power away from us because he paid the sin for the sin that gives them the right to attack us the right to have dominion over us. It's like when we rebelled as a human race, we surrendered the leadership of our lives to the enemy. We took it from God, no longer submitting to him, and we gave it to the enemy. We became his subjects, subjects of the kingdom of darkness. When we accept and receive Jesus, he puts to flight those evil spirits. Where sin and spiritual darkness had reigned, the people were finding forgiveness A release from the debt that gave those demons a right to say, see, look, I have a right to afflict this person. They have sinned against you, almighty God. I get a right to torture them. Now they can say, I'm forgiven. You don't have that against me anymore. There's no IOU. You can lift before God and say, look, I get to accuse them. So healing and hope for broken hearts came to Samaria. When you earnestly receive Jesus Christ and surrender to him, he comes in. He fills us with his Holy Spirit and begins to heal and change those who trust him. He's still doing that today. Can I hear an amen? Amen. You know, I I find that interesting now. It describes that when the, the Holy Spirit came to Samaria, he didn't come right away. Philip preached. They believed. They were baptized in the name of Jesus, but they still didn't get the fullness of the Holy Spirit until the apostles came down from Jerusalem and laid hands on them. Now, there's more to that story we're about to get to. But sometimes those things don't happen at the same time. You can commit your life to Christ. 
You can get baptized. You can believe. You can have a head knowledge and even a beginning of a relationship with God. You're starting to walk with him. You're starting to experience his healing. But he has more of himself to give you. That's what they got when Peter and John came down and laid hands on them. They got more of the Holy Spirit. You know, you can't even see who Jesus is without the help of the Holy Spirit. So they had the Holy Spirit working with them. But the fullness, that baptism, that outpouring of the Spirit came as the apostles laid hands on them, and they got a fresh wave. You know, that's the way the body of Christ works sometimes. When we lay hands and pray for each other, God moves and gives us more of himself through each other. I've experienced that at the altar where I've come up and been praying and felt like there was a block or something was in the way and my prayers were not fully there and I was not totally released. And then somebody comes up and lays hands on me and it's like the wave of God comes over me. I've experienced that. Some of you have experienced that. That's how Jesus uses the body of Christ so that we can build each other up and bless each other. The apostles had a gift as a part of the body of Christ to bring to Samaria more of God. Now, there were challenges in the city, including spiritual confusion. And one of the new converts was named Simon. Here's what it says about him. I'll read it again. For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed the people, all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was summoned great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now you see Simon, the sorcerer, the magician believed, he, he heard the good news, he believed, and he was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by what he saw. Now, Simon's conversion shows us that people can be mixed up in all kinds of sins and still recognize their need for Jesus. But his is also a cautionary tale. It says Simon had practiced sorcery, and he boasted that he was summoned great. His works prior to Philip's arrival amazed the people who called him the great power of God. That was like a title. This is the magnificent Simon. And they followed him for a long time before the gospel came. Now, Simon's astonishment at the gospel wonders tells us something about his own sorcery works. They were not in the same category as the power of God nor was their source the same source. The miracles of the gospel are done by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the wonders of sorcery are counterfeit. They're the activity of deceiving spirits. And Simon himself knew the difference. Hence his astonishment when he saw the real power of God. Something similar happened in Egypt when Moses came in and began declaring the judgments of God on that nation for enslaving the Israelites. You see, the first couple of those plagues, the Egyptian magicians imitated them somehow. We don't quite know how, but they did something with their, you know, their fireworks and their little um, deceiving methodologies to imitate the first couple plagues. But then the plagues keep piling up and getting worse and worse, and the magicians come to Pharaoh and say, we can't do what he's doing. 
This is the real God. You better repent. So the magicians themselves start to name the difference between the, the counterfeit version of what they're doing and the wonders of God that are happening under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Simon is experiencing the same thing as he sees the true power of God setting people free from demons and healing them. The paralyzed made whole, jumping up in joy. Now, the Greek word here for sorcery in this passage is magon, from which we get our word magic or mage. The Greek word translated as magic arts in Revelation 21.8 and read from that passage, and as witchcraft in Galatians 5.20 are variants of the word pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. Sorcery and witchcraft involve the effort to control nature, the self, or others, using various types of spiritual power, often directly or indirectly invoking the aid of demons, and also involving the ritualistic use of magic potions and mind-altering drugs. These drugs open the brain to the, uh, make them vulnerable to the power of suggestion, as well as the possibility of invasion by demonic spirits. In ancient times, sorcerers and priests at pagan temples would get their devotees besotted with mind-altering drugs, wave their hands and utter strange, strange incantations before them, seeming to cause the weird things going on in their heads. Though counterfeit, these would seem to be powerful spiritual experiences. Indeed, using mind-altering drugs for the purpose of an achieving, achieving an altered state of consciousness continues to be a form of witchcraft. And it's a rising form in our culture today, since the 60s, when we saw uh, the college kids begin to experiment with LSD and, and hallucinogenic mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. Mind-altering experiences that opened them to the influence of demonic spirits. It was witchcraft, whether they knew it or not. Now, please don't hear this to mean we should never use any drugs. Thank God for ibuprofen. <laughs> and for me this morning, Benadryl. Okay? And a host of other medicines that help us deal with our bodily and sometimes mental and emotional difficulties. Praise God for those. But mind-altering drugs are in a different category from medicine. They involve the intentional effort to escape the mental and emotional limits God has given us, to experience ecstasy, a trip, an astral travel, and so on, causing us to hallucinate and to experience things with a pseudo-spiritual dimension and making us vulnerability to the possibility of invasion by demonic spirits. A modern-day analogy would be the powerful, mystical, and almost spiritual experience people had who attended one of the great modern rock festivals like Woodstock while taking psychotropic drugs. Little did they know they were reenacting the environment of ancient pagan temple worship, complete with pharmakia and sexual immorality. Indeed, following those experiences, many participants, participants did become different people acting as if they were possessed by a new spirit, the age of Aquarius. Do you remember that? A lying spirit. And one that was not friendly to God, to his truth or his ways. Now it tells us something about the source of sorcery's counterfeit wonders. 
Deuteronomy 18 describes how God forbid the people of Israel from being involved in sorcery. I won't read that whole passage, but it's a couple verses. Again, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. Child sacrifice. Boy, does that sound familiar? Who practices divination or sorcery interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. That's strong language. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. You know, the fact that God drove out the other nations before Israel because they did those same detestable occult practices shows this is not just a ceremonial command for Old Testament times. The command forbidding sorcery, witchcraft, and all those related practices is part of God's timeless moral will for humanity. He's seeking to protect us from devils. Now, that's the bottom line there. Seeking to protect us from devils. In Galatians 5.20, the New Testament confirms this. Paul lists witchcraft as one of the acts of the sinful nature, warning us that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 21 also warns what will happen at the last judgment to those who refuse to repent of such things. Christ said to me, John heard it, he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The thirst, to the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, this is the second death. That is not a good destiny for those who won't give up practicing the magic arts, along with those other things. The Christian Apologetics website, gotquestions.org, summarizes the difficulty with sorcery like this. Witchcraft and its many cousins, such as fortune-telling and necromancy, and necromancy is magic with the dead, or consulting the dead, seances, that kind of thing. They are Satan's counterfeits to holy spirituality. And the Bible expressly condemns all forms of witchcraft. And there are, only, there are only two sources of spiritual power, God or Satan. Satan has only the power that God allows him to have, but it's considerable. A lot of it is the power to tempt, to suggest, to offer, to offer lies. But those, when we follow them, lead to those things murder, theft, and destruction. To seek spirituality, knowledge, or power apart from God is idolatry, closely related to witchcraft. And at the heart of these occult practices is the desire to know the future and control events that are not ours to control. Those abilities belong only to the Lord. This desire has its roots in Satan's first temptation to Eve. You can be like God. Sure. Now, have you, have you noticed this? I've noticed this as I, I watch various shows on TV and in the theaters, how many of the modern myths of our entertainment industry, such as the mutants, 
the comic book superheroes, and so many teenage magicians involved a fantasy of people having godlike power. Have you noticed that? Since Eden, Satan's major focus has been to divert human hearts away from the worship of the true God, and he entices humans with the suggestions of power, self-realization, and spiritual enlightenment apart from submission to the Lord God. I'm spiritual, but I don't follow Jesus. That's, that's that. Witchcraft is merely another branch of that enticement. To become involved in witchcraft in any way is to enter Satan's realm. Seemingly harmless modern entanglements with witchcraft can include horoscopes, Ouija boards, Eastern meditation rituals, seances, seeking to commune with the spirits of the dead, and some types of video and role-playing games, especially those that encourage the participant to be tempted to do magic. You know, many a child who's played Dungeons and Dragons, in that game, you have magicians and they do all these type of spells. But a lot of those kids think, hey, that's really cool. What if I could do that in real life? And they start to dabble in trying actual magical practices. So, opening themselves to invasion by the enemy. Any practice that dabbles in a supernatural power source other than the Lord Jesus Christ is witchcraft. Now, back to Simon. Let's look what happened to him. When the apostles heard about the revival in Samaria, they sent Peter and John to help. And you know how the Holy Spirit came upon them. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You see his craving for power shining through here in his request. And Peter answered, classic answer, May your money perish with you. Boy, there's a time to use that. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. If you want to have a part and share in the ministry of God, you've got to get your heart right before Him. Peter says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now, Peter rebukes him. Your heart's not right. I see you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Bitterness and captivity to sin underlay Simon's craving for power, including his seeking it through sorcery and trying to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the stories of various people who've gotten involved in witchcraft or occult practices show many were lured to them, into them, through the promise of power. Power over evil spirits. Occult power to manipulate the world. Power to control other people. Power to know the future. Power for protection. Power to, uh, to overcome the difficulties of life. They crave power because they were bitter and various things were there rooted in them, making them feel maybe powerless. Like, oh gosh, this is horrible, this situation. If only I had power, I'd never let this happen. And the enemy comes in and says, I got a source of power for you. Why don't you try me for a bit? They craved power because they were bitter and wanted outsized power to deal with it. At some point, the devil tempted them to turn to another source than God for that power, and they took the bait. Both bitterness and occult involvement are defiling, and they make us vulnerable to deception, 
And they are a source and cause of spiritual confusion, stupor, resistance to the things of God, to, and uh, uh, causing the inability to fully grasp them. And those who have been involved in that kind of idolatrous compromise. You can think of it as spiritual adultery. That's what witchcraft is. Uh, faithfulness to the Lord is to go to Him for the power we need in life. Spiritual adultery is to go to somebody else for the power that we need, forsaking our beloved husband as the church, as the creator, and going instead to some other spirit to get to that power. Peter, now, I want, I want to focus here on some solutions. All right? You heard the bad news. It's bad. If you've been involved in witchcraft or the occult, or you know someone who is, they've opened their, you've opened the door of your life without maybe even knowing it to demonic influence and oppression to the paralyzing influence of the devil and to the wrath of God. Now, such people are not beyond you and I are not beyond the forgiveness of God because of that. Peter gave Simon this spiritual prescription for his deep-seated sin. Repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness. Simple, right? We have the ability to name and repent and renounce our sins, even these. Sadly, Simon refused to do this. Instead, he said, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. Verse 24. He didn't combine belief with obedience or try to develop his own relationship with God. Instead, he sought to put the responsibility for his own spiritual condition back on Peter. But it was not Peter's duty to repent for Simon's sins. It was Simon's. Likewise, it's not anyone else's responsibility to repent of my sins except me. Likewise, you. Nobody else can do that for you, but you can do it with God's help. Simon didn't combine belief with obedience. He shirked his duty. He shirked the relationship. You know, various memoirs from the early church suggest Simon refused to repent and continued to practice sorcery after this. He became the founder of a counterfeit Christian cult with some ridiculous heretical teaching centered on himself. And uh, you can go look that up. It's just so crazy, it's not even worth going into. But apparently he wanted to be, continue to be known as the great power of God. He may even have died in a contest to prove his magical abilities, only to have them come up short in the end, <clears throat> unable to save him because they were counterfeits. Now, I'm bringing it home. Look at that. One more page. I had seven this morning. Can you believe it? Simon's deep problems were threefold, and they're lessons for us. He was involved in the counterfeit spirituality of the cult. He was full of bitterness, and he was captive to sin. He believed and was baptized. He had the opportunity <clears throat> to go deeper with the Lord by getting rid of his bitterness, repenting of his sins, and learning to walk with God in humility and submission, welcoming the true power of the Holy Spirit to transform his own life. You know, I could just see if he, had, if he had looked at himself and said, oh my gosh, I've just been craving power. I've been so angry and bitter at the world. It's time to quit. I'm going to embrace the love of God and the Holy Spirit coming and fill him. He would have had his own set of gifts. And graces God would have given him to bless the church. But instead, 
He pushed that all away. He refused. That brings us to our own spiritual walk. In the past, God knows we may have been ignorant about the true dark nature of occult things we might have dabbled in. But now he calls us, people everywhere, to repent. If you've been involved in any way with the occult or are holding on to bitterness about something, about anything, God is calling you to repent because those become a foothold, indeed a stronghold, an open door that can grow into a stronghold for the enemy. Now, this repentance should include renouncing any involvement with magic, witchcraft, or sorcery, including the use of mind-altering drugs, divination, idolatry, fortune-telling, or astrology and horoscopes. I'm convinced one of the reasons people get addicted and cannot stop once they get into use of psychotropic drugs is because the devil has grabbed them and they are slaves to it. And the only way to get out is to confess the sin that they did by entering into that form of forbidden pharmakia and ask God to forgive them, to renounce it. Because the devil has a hold on them, a firm grip, until they say to God, I don't want that sin in my life anymore, forgive me. This generation has forgotten a lot of these spiritual principles of protection for God's people. And so even believers are walking into this kind of stuff, thinking, yeah, let me just experiment with that. It's just a once and done thing. It's just a game. But those who practice these things are inviting the enemy to come in to harass and enslave them. Even deeper than those, God calls us to repent of our bitterness and our captivity to sin, our hunger for power, and refusal to trust him for it. Our hunger to control the future. Instead of saying, hey, cares the day or enough. Evil's this day or enough. You take care of tomorrow. Right? Didn't Jesus say that somewhere? Jesus, the Lord, Father God, has provided the way of forgiveness and cleansing. He offers the gift of his own power and the Holy Spirit to help us overcome and be victorious in life. And he calls us to turn from all counterfeit spiritualities to trust his son. So, here's the invitation. If you've been involved in any way with the occult, even in so simple and silly a matter as playing with a Ouija board, getting a fortune told, a palm read, or tarot card reading at the Atlantic City boardwalk, and you, a, a seance you did as a game because you saw it on a TV show, and you want to get free of that sin and close the door you open for the enemy, Confess your sin to God and ask for his forgiveness and cleansing from it, from its effects through the power of the blood of Jesus. He will forgive and heal you. Confess and renounce. That's scriptural. You know, we, we name that every time we take Holy Communion, but daily confession is appropriate, right? When you get to the part of the Lord's Prayer where it says, Can forgive us our sins, that's time to do full stop and say, okay, Lord, here they are. I repent. And then the next phrase, if you are secretly bitter about anything, anything, bitterness is a root that grows up to defile many. And, and, and it leads to the belief in false things. Now, there are people who have been like, you know, like Simon. His bitterness, his occult involvement led him to found a cult. A crazy of crazy ideas. If you read them, you think, oh, how did those people get suckered by that? But that's what happens when bitterness takes over. You start to believe lies. 
So if you've been secretly bitter about anything, confess that and renounce that. Give it to God. Ask him to forgive you. Forgive the person you're bitter at or the situation you're bitter about. Let it go. So the bitterness doesn't control you. The love of God and the joy of the Lord is what directs and leads your path. And you're not controlled at all by the past. You're set free from it. Now, I, I'm, I'm bringing it to a close here. I have nothing else written. You were good. You were pay- I didn't see anybody falling asleep. I was... Now, I, I remember when I learned this teaching, I had a kid since I was six years old watching some TV show with a, uh, a seance in it, thinking, oh, that looks cool. Let's do a seance in the living room. And I did. I was just reflecting this morning on that. And when I learned this teaching about how important it is to get out of any kind of compromise in the spiritual domain and also bitterness, God began to do a work in me as I confessed and renounced those things. And he would bring them to mind. If you can't remember, ask the Holy Spirit to remember. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I did something. I can't quite remember it. The Holy Spirit can bring it to mind so that you can name it, confess it, repent of it, and renounce it and ask forgiveness in one prayer. I I, uh, counseled someone who had dabbled in witchcraft as a kid by... They watched the TV show Bewitched, and and they thought, well, that is so cool. I wonder if I could try that. And she tried to practice magic the way the Bewitched lady did. Well, magic is magic, even if it's a game, even if it's a child's game. The enemy doesn't care it's a child's game. In fact, he's like, you children have no idea what you let me come in here and start messing you up. And when she confessed and renounced that, and and, and asked God to forgive her, and and as her pastor, I went through a, a little... Um, uh, spiritually addressing that, she said she felt something leave her body that had been gnawing at the back of her spine for years. And she experienced a new openness to God after that. A new openness to the things of the Spirit, a new hunger, a new understanding to go deeper into the things of God because that enemy had been partially blinding her mind. Now, it's so important for the people of God to come out of the ways of the world in this, to get cleansed, and to know how to minister to those who've gotten involved in it. That's at least half the reason to hear and study this teaching about Simon is because we got the Simons out there in, in, the, in the West today, in our culture, in our community. I, I drove up the pot, uh, back road to Pottsville past the cemetery one day, and I saw the skull of a, a ram nailed to one of the trees going up that back uh, road. And I thought, what the heck? That's a witchcraft thing. Who put that up there? Somebody. Right? It's going on in our county. And some of that is ancestral. It's going way back either to Native American spiritism that worshiped various idols and came up with power to control life, or German, the same German version that took place in the folklore of the German peoples and came over here with the Pennsylvania Dutch. Things like powwow and water divination and all that kind of stuff, those are not of God. Those are versions of witchcraft, seeking to use power that does not come from Jesus, but from a competitor. So what do we do with that when we learn it? We confess and repent, including the sins of our ancestors. That's scriptural. Some of the greatest men in the Old Testament, they prayed prayers that included, forgive me, forgive us, forgive us our ancestors for the sins that we have done against you, our idolatry and our unfaithfulness, and how we disobeyed you. 
You are just in the judgment you're pouring out on us. Have mercy on us and forgive us. You can do that. You can be the one to bring to a stop the ancestral curse of being involved in witchcraft. Maybe you had a grandmother who got into it, and she had like a, um, a sensitivity to the spirit realm. She could, quote unquote, see the future sometimes. And, and you know that it's been passed down through the family line. That is a version of flesh, spiritual power that does not come from Jesus. If it's passed down ancestrally, it does not come from Jesus. You can get free of that by confessing on behalf of your family, yourself, and your ancestors. Say, Lord, I am sorry that my people rebelled against you and disobeyed you. I repent on our behalf. You hear that? You're standing in the, in the gap for your whole family. We can do this in a certain sense for our culture because there are a lot of people we're not related to, but they're captive to these things. And as we start to take the gospel out of these doors and we are encountering people, some are going to have their, their minds half-blinded because they've been involved in this kind of stuff, maybe just as a game, not realizing what they've done. And we need to be able to understand, hey, even there they can hear the good news of the gospel. Like those people in Samaria who were all like uh, fascinated with, with Simon and Simon himself. And we can help them, challenge them, lead them into the fuller life of Jesus. Uh, but you need to be equipped to know how to deal with it. This is one of the ways. So as we come to a close now and we sing our closing hymn, I want to invite you to come to the altar. If you have anything that you want to confess and repent of, and you want God to forgive you for, and you want, maybe you want to do it on behalf of the family and, and renounce an ancestral involvement with these unclean spiritual practices. And the Lord will meet you. You can be the priest on behalf of your family, confessing and repenting what came before so that it comes to an end with you. It used to be said the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge and, and demonic involvement in the supernatural like this sets demons loose in a whole family for generations. But in Jesus, that can come to an end through repentance and forgiveness, letting our bitterness go. Maybe today what you heard was, hey, I got bitterness and I got to deal with it. It's been shutting down the fullness of God that he wants for me in my life. I'm sick of that. I'm tired of being a slave to the past, to other people, and what they've done to me or said or whatever. I'm tired of it. Lord Jesus, I give you my bitterness. I'm going to give their judgment to you. I forgive them. That's the second part of that Lord's Prayer bit. As we forgive those who sin against us, we prayed it today. So let's put it into practice. <sighs> Glory to God. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher this podcast and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.